This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. We're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. If you're wondering, hey, where did this episode come from? It's a surprise. That's right. We surprised you with this episode. No advanced warning. We're talking with Chris Conley of Saves the Day about the 20th anniversary of their album, through being cool let's get to it this is chris hey chris this is uh tim and jay with the dig me out podcast how are you doing hey tim and jay how you guys doing i'm doing great great it's interesting we you know we get I, to do occasionally these 20 year lookbacks at at records but not all the time so usually when we do we don't get to you know Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a landmark, right? It's quite a milestone. Well, yeah, and Jay and I were discussing this before. You know, in terms of the catalog, you know, this is the one where if if somebody says, "Hey, do you know Saves the Day?" Yeah. and you're like, "No, this is probably yeah. the album that they're going to recommend. Yeah, I would, I would, I think that's the place to start. It's easy. It's easy listening for, and as far as saves the day goes, there's not, there's not too much intense emo on there. It's more like a jawbreaker or something. Do you think that this album sort of encapsulates the sound of, of what you were trying to do and what you are doing as a songwriter and a, as a, vocalist and a and a lyricist well i wouldn't say as a vocalist although when you hear the um the double album that we're putting out as for the re-release the 20th anniversary contains uh the basement demos that i made um and we made those probably six months to a year before we actually tracked the record and you can really hear how much i grew as a vocalist when you listen to the demos in reference uh to the album so I did grow a lot as a vocalist, but I was still just a punk singer. And, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking too much about the technique of singing. That came later for me once I got into the Beatles. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like that's kind of the essence of Saves the Day. You know, through being cool and stay what you are, kind of like that classic sound. And um, I'd say the self-titled record is kind of, along those lines that's why i wanted to name it saves the day because it's like a, the classic saves the day sound and like that's just how i like music like i just like that i like uh i like energetic melodic pop rock when you went back and listened to those demos that you had originally done and when you were digging through you know archives for this re-release 
are there moments where you're like, I don't remember doing this. I don't know how I did. I don't recall what this was or what this is. Or do you have any moments like that where it's just a complete shock of things that you come across? No, but there was one part that I completely forgot about. There was um, sort of like an alternate ending uh, to the song through being cool. It had this extended outro where it, there was like a mid-tempo breakdown and we sort of wrote it out and there was an extra stanza of lyrics. And I had completely forgotten that we, we chopped that off. At some point in the process, we decided, oh, this song should end right here. And we just like lopped off the tail. Um, but as soon as I heard it, I remembered, oh my gosh, I remember this part. I like that part. Um, but we got rid of it for a good reason. It was it didn't need to keep going. But I mean, in terms of all the other stuff, the guitars and everything, like I can remember so clearly coming up with all those riffs and and doing the demos and coming up with like lead parts and everything and bass lines and stuff. And yeah, it's all super fresh to me in my my mind's eye, my memory. And you mentioned this record uh, is maybe a little less emo. I, we have to ask. How do you, what do you think of when you think of emo or what is emo in terms of saves the day? Well, first uh, of all, I love, I love emo. I think it's so cool. It's like a brand new genre, you know, emerged mm-hmm. in the late nineties. Um, and all of a sudden there's like, it's, it's as if, you know, you were a part of like punk coming on the scene or hip hop, like starting we got to be part of emo being, you know, born, which is just wild. So I just feel like I love emo music and I'm grateful to be a part of that movement. Um, I think what I mean by that is that I wrote that album and like, it's just such a great time in my life. I just like felt so good and was so happy and so excited about life. So you can, you can hear that. What I mean by that, it's not, the fact that it's not as emo is that, um, you know, as soon as we get to stay what you are, I'm dealing with a lot more darker themes and that's emo, you know, the heavy stuff, the emotional gotcha. stuff, you know, so at your funeral is pretty darn emo. Yep. That makes sense. That's, uh, you know, we often, we've had a couple episodes, I think on the topic of what it is and isn't and what bands are part of it or not. So, uh, great to give your, your point of view purist. on it. Yeah, I'm not much of a purist when it comes to that kind of thing. I respect the art form. I think it's cool. And I'm not one of those guys that's like, don't call us emo. I think it's totally rad. It's awesome. Well, it's the same thing with like, I think shoegaze gets the same sort of. That's a weird, that's just a weird term. You know what I mean? It's kind of passive. It's just not, that's almost a pejorative term. You right. know, it's almost putting down that style. Like you just sit there, you're bored, you're staring at your feet. <laughs> you know? And I think that's where it came from. It was a journalist that, that nicknamed, I think it was My Bloody Valentine as Shoegaze because Kevin Shields had like 40 pedals in front of him and we just kept looking down at his pedals. That's wild. And, yeah, and they kind of took it and went, okay, fine. Kind of like punk. <laughs> Right. Punk is almost a diss that got, you know, appropriated. And so it's curious, you know, listening to this record now versus listening to it 20 years ago, I think, so when you made, oh, let me backtrack for a sec. When you made this record, you were in college, right? At, 
I think it was yeah, that time. I was at NYU. Okay. So you were a couple years younger than Jay and myself, because when this came out, Jay and I had both graduated college. So we were sort of looking at... Were you like 96 in high, class of 96 in high school, or what? Oh, 94? no, no. We graduated, we graduated college, well, 98. So Jay... Graduated you, college in 98. So you guys, I graduated high school in 98. Okay. So there's about a four-year difference there. So the emo scene was like what the people who were a couple years younger than us were getting into. And we were sort of right. seeing it from the outside because we weren't a part of that. Those house shows that were happening and right, that right. Th- those touring circuit Grassroots. bands. So it's interesting to hear it in that context from a distance then and then hear it now where there's kind of blurred lines between any sort of genres. You, know, you go on to Spotify, you just kind of listen to everything. And... Right, right. When I hear it now, I don't hear. I mean, I hear some of the contemporaries, but I, I was listening to this. I was going, "Oh, I kind of hear some like bad religion in this song, with the way that with the way that vocal harmony is going on in this song, or the way that the the riff breaks down on this this particular track." Did you do you find yourself? You know, I I know at the time I had read that some of the stuff you were listening to was like Pinkerton and and. Um, some contemporary bands of the nineties, maybe that had existed a few years before, but as you have some distance from that, do you hear a broader range of influences or of, or of uh, bands that, you know, you might've not thought of at the time that you were being influenced by, but now that you recognize, Oh, I really was into Zeppelin. I didn't realize it or something like that. Uh, (laughs) No, I definitely know exactly where it came from. You know, what, what I was like really psyched on at the time and you know, what inspired me. And it's, I said it a bunch in interviews, it's all in there. Um, we were really into the Foo Fighters record, uh, the color and the shape. And we were driving around on tour. Listener refused album, the shape of punk to come. Those are probably the two primary records. And then it's Weezer and uh, jawbreaker. You know, that's basically like what I was obsessed with. And then, um, you know, there's other bands that I sometimes don't, I sometimes forget to mention in interviews, bands like Hot Water Music and Bouncing Souls. I was really, really into the Bouncing Souls album, Maniacal Laughter at the time. Okay. And if you listen to that, they're a New Jersey band, so I got to see them all the time. And I was like obsessed with them and Lifetime at the same time. Like those two bands who play New Brunswick or Philly all the time. So I got to see them all the time. And I loved both of those bands. Lifetime did a lot less um, mid-tempo songs. They were like super blazing fast, like Bad Brains. But um, Bouncing Souls was mid-tempo, and it was not your standard punk or pop punk. There were these melodic songs that had um, emotion to them, but the songwriter, they were just like really good songs, very much like Jawbreaker, um, their record 24-Hour Revenge Therapy is like one of the most important albums of my my entire life. And I feel like if you listen to Jawbreaker and you could almost imagine me singing those and it would be like, you know, through being cool part two. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Interesting. I see it now I Yeah, it's all Jawbreaker. Yeah, and I don't pick that's weird because I that would not be a like if you were to it's say name voice. ten it's, it's, I think it's because Right, I think it's his voice that where you wouldn't be able to fully, like, instantly go, oh, that's what it, this reminds me of. But right. if you listen to the songs, 
like, cause I sent, I have like an extremely high register. And so I sing, um, on like, you know, most like male singers who have a much more, you know, just typical male range and Blake Schwarzenbach, he doesn't go for high notes, you know, even in his next project gets to Brazil, there's very few super high notes that he goes for. Right. So I think that, you know, when you think of Saves the Day, there's like that urgent sort of, um, there's that urgent singing that I think is very indicative of emo, what would become emo, these kids. It basically sounds like kids, you know, singing. It doesn't, emo is like a, like young, young men. It's not like grown men, aside from like hot water music for like grizzled guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, emo, the whole thing with emo is it was these super young bands. So you can like, you could hear on, you know, our first album or the first demo, I'm like 16, 17. You know, like I'm just a kid. I was fresh out of high school when we did through being cool, you know? So, so anyway, if you pictured a kid singing those Jawbreaker songs, it would be <laughs> days of day. When did you figure out how to best utilize your voice? Did you figure that out before the first record? Or did you have to work that through that? Came, that okay. was a process, an ongoing process. It mostly came from playing shows. Once you become like an actual working band, you're playing shows all the time. It's not just a one-off show like once a month or once a week. You know, where you could sort of like shred your vocals and then rebuild your voice over the week and play another show on Saturday. You have to play a show every single night and you have to drive 10 hours a night to get to the next place. You're not getting sleep and you're malnourished and whatnot. It really wears on you physically and it's extremely hard to keep your voice in shape. And I used to lose my voice all the time. It's the worst feeling ever. Um, and then I actually blew out my voice doing Through Being Cool on the song Third Engine. Um, I was like really going for it that day. And, uh, by the end of the, the, uh, the, the session, my throat felt really weird in a way that it never felt before. And the next day I couldn't sing at all. And so we had to postpone finishing the vocals. Um, and that was a wake up call because you, we had to, uh, book, book more time, two half days, a different studio. And so, it became clear to me that I really need to learn how to take care of my voice. So that's when the journey began, really. Where did you go but from then there? I, then I, discover, I discovered the Beatles, and then it was like, oh, I'll just learn how to sing by singing the Beatles. So I learned like a million Beatles songs. And I still, um, to this day, when I'm not touring, I keep my voice in shape by doing Beatles songs because they're the perfect range. They're the exact same range as me. Wow. They sing very high and they sing powerfully but they have perfect control and their melodies are so well composed that you have to really know what you're doing to hit all those notes so it was extremely fun like as a music nerd um to just like undertake that and dive in and learn how to sing like the pros have you ever taken lessons or done any training of any kind uh, our guitar player arun and i went to learn how to warm up one uh, one time in Detroit, his friend's dad is this opera singer who like teaches vocal lessons. So he carved out like an hour for us before our gig in Detroit one time. 
we went over there to his house and stood around his piano and I recorded it on my voice memo. Um, and we were there for like, t- we, we really only were there for about 20, 30 minutes. Um, and that the recorded warm up is like 13 minutes long. And that's what I warm up with every single day still, sometimes twice a day. And it's just like a bunch of scales and um, like musical patterns that you're just wrapping your voice around and sort of ramping up to your full power. Um, but yeah, since I, since I recorded it, I didn't need to, I didn't need to keep going back. I just keep listening to that thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, revisiting the record, I, um, boy, I hear a lot of metal riffs on this record <laughs> that I don't think I heard. Yeah. Like uh, you mentioned first bad religion, which is, which is interesting. I, he- I hear what you mean by the bad religion thing. I was never like obsessed with them. I liked the one album. I think it's called suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point I was pretty into that, but that their music never really came through um, to me. Like those riffs were a lot of like Walter Schreifels from Gorilla Biscuits and Quicksand. He wrote and youth of today. He wrote these crazy cool metal esque riffs and i was never into metal but i'm a huge classic rock guy like aerosmith and led zeppelin and so i love riffs like riffs are the one of the first things that like mesmerized me about music and then you get a guitar and you start learning riffs so another band that was very much riff based actually this is wild i hadn't thought about this dag nasty I don't know if you've ever heard of them. It's a band that I was obsessed with. And their guitar player who wrote all their songs is Brian Baker, who's in Pad Religion. So there you go. And wasn't he in Junkyard too? I haven't heard of that. I got to check that out. But yeah, it's Brian Baker. That's what I'm, that that was like my favorite riff master back then was Brian Baker. I'm pretty sure that. He's in Minor Threat as well. Yes. And I loved Minor Threat. Yeah, Brian Baker was uh, was in the original. It's uh, Jay. Remember? So we're gonna go off on a little tangent here. It seemed like towards Brian the end out. of the eighties, there were some guys that were in like punk and hardcore bands who went on to do like metal. One of those bands was the Four Horsemen that Rick Rubin put together, and it was like yep. a bunch of dudes oh, cool. who had been in. And they sound like the Black Crows, essentially. And then uh, Brian Baker had been in, um, you know, a ton of stuff, Government Issue and and Minor Threat, like you mentioned. And, right, right, right. And uh, Bad Religion. Right. And so in 89, I guess he probably joined him in 88 after he left. I guess we've been after. Well, yeah, after Dag Nasty. Uh, he goes to this metal band called junkyard and they're like a straight up like you know hard rock i don't think i've ever heard that it's like a blues hard rock ladies metal thing yeah i mean there was starting to be some of that the cross cross pollination the blending of worlds back then there's uh what were they called um into another was like very sort of classic rock but they came from the 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 uh hardcore scene and uh, that was the kind of stuff that inspired me. Like Walter Schreifel's coming from writing Gorilla Biscuits and, and then starting Quicksand. 
Um, there was something about the way that Walter writes guitar that just is exciting. Like it's just, I love his riffs, and uh, and I, I was going for that. Like, in fact, the uh, this first Save the Day album, Can't Slow Down, starts, and I've told Walter this with um, a conscious homage to uh, Girl Biscuits' classic record, Start Today, um, which starts with a guitar. Um, that goes dun dun dun, and so on. Can't slow down. We consciously started the album with that dun dun dun. <laughs> so recently, we were able to um, share a headlining spot with them at a three-day festival called This Is Hardcore in Philly, and we knew they were they were going to headline the night after us, and we knew they were going to probably start with the song New Direction, that the song with that opening guitar riff. So we obviously had to start our set with the with the song that is the tip of the hat to that so it's really fun but i want to go back to third engine because the intro to that song yeah, before you say shreddy. that sounds like iron maiden <laughs> like when i say metal that's like shreddy riff. that is some that's palm mutant going on and like but also what's what, what's cool about it is that it's very much melancholy like that yeah. riff is very melancholy. Very, that's one of the more emo songs on through being cool. So the the chord progression is minor but melodic. And like I don't really love like angry, aggressive. Like I'm not a metal fan. I like Master mm-hmm. of Puppets, and honestly, I like the Black Album by Metallica. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> but um, like it's I'm okay. not. Like, I don't like. Yeah, I don't like that kind of music. Um, mm-hmm. I think the thing that was appealing to me about things that like Walter would write was there would also be this melodic singing on top of it. Yeah. And the guitar parts weren't that far off from something you might hear on Jawbreaker who also have like emotional guitar riffs. It's not like angry, you know, I mean, I know anger is an emotion, but I mean, in terms of that emo sad boy thing, (laughs) Uh, well, I, what's going on? I think you might like Iron Maiden though, based on that song. I think <laughs> I really don't though. That's the thing. Because like, it, I don't, sounds I, like, I, it sounds like, it sounds like the number of the beast. I mean, even the drum fill. People say, people say that to me all the time. They're like, we hear so much iron maiden through being cool. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's funny to me. Cause I don't, I, I couldn't even tell you the name of an iron maiden song. No, yeah. I have literally never heard a complete iron maiden song in my life. You should check it out. I think you might like it. <laughs> I, I'm never going to listen to it. It's not up my alley. Um, I could get into, like, na- like in my later years, I can, uh, without it being a guilty pleasure, get into, like, Def Leppard. But that's pop music. If you listen yeah. to it, I'm a pop music. Right. I like melody. It's, yep. it's not far off from Master of Puppets, to be honest, in terms of... Yeah, Master of Puppets has real music. It's, like, right. really melodic and extremely catchy. And uh, there's something about their guitars that remind me of like really dark Led Zeppelin. And Zeppelin is the reason that I, I wanted to make music to begin with. So it all kind of is connected.
The, uh, there, you know what? There's probably a lot more Metallica in those. When you're hearing metal, yeah, I was, I was really into Master of Puppets. Like I listened to that album a thousand times. I really liked it. So I bet that's where that was all coming yeah. from. You get the like metal inf- inflected riffs from Walter Schreifold and Gorilla Biscuits and Quicksand, and then Metallica. Yep. But you know, I would never have thought of that, and it's not something that I would like consciously like wave the flag for. <laughs> but that record is sick. Yeah, and it's not something that I think you know in 1999 I would have heard myself, but just with a little bit of time, like things start yeah, to. Yeah, that's a great. I'm glad that you asked. Sound different. Like I'm, I'm seeing it with new eyes in, in light of that. Yeah. That's what it is, though. It's Metallica. It's like, like Rock's County Juice Magic is like a, it's like a pop metal riff. Yep. Yeah, I definitely picked up on that too. It has a really strong melody, but a really nice chunky riff under it, and you kind of get that yeah. pop metal kind of sound. Yeah, and like the riff for you, Vandal, is very much like that. It's just like pop metal. Yeah. <laughs> What's a Guitar tone on this record is great. Um, it, it holds up yeah. really well. I mean, overall, the sound of the record holds up really well. Like you would wouldn't know it was recorded in '99. It sounds as modern as anything. Oh yeah, Steve Evitz, the producer, killed it. I mean, he made a record that sounds timeless. You could listen that. You could listen to that 20 years from now, and it'll still sound good. That's all, Steve. And he worked with Steve, a lot of metal bands too. <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. true. Steve, yeah, his. His nickname on the uh, album in the liner notes is Steve. I'm still Metal Evans. <laughs> yeah, he had he had uh, done Symphony Acts, which is like big epic metal and MOD and yeah, and like Sepultura and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Hate Breed, Snapcase. He did all the. Um, that's actually how we got into Steve. Was he was working with all those bands plus my favorite band, Lifetime. So we got to work with this guy. He's right down the highway. We saved up 500 bucks to spend one day with them and made the uh, demo tape, the Save the Day demo tape, and then continued to go back to him until we were supposed to do Say What You Are with him, but he was busy in Brazil with Sepultura. Got it. So do you so that's play... how we found Rob Schnapp, which is amazing. Do you play guitar on this record, or is it just, at the? I guess it would be at the time, Ted and Yeah, David. I did a bunch of the guitar. Okay. I did a lot of it. I didn't do the bulk of it. On Can't Slow Down, I recorded 99% of the guitar. We didn't have that much time, and I was the best player in the band. Um, on Through Being Cool, uh, we had a little bit more time, and you know, it, it meant a lot for the guys to be able to... They didn't, it's, it would have felt different for them if I had played everything. But you know, if we were going to track like, like the, the riff, uh, third engine riff, that's me, um, through being cool that's me like some of the stuff where it was wound up taking a long time and it looked like it could have been an hours long you know um sort of like headache uh steve would come out into the uh into the lounge or whatever and be like hey chris can you just like come throw this part down right now and i did that on every saves the day record until i wound up taking back the guitar mantle for a while so sort of the uh the secret weapon what were you playing at that time guitar rig wise um we had uh 
It was a Marshall mm, 2000, JCM Marshall 2000. Okay. Um, double tracked with a uh, 5150. Mm. And it was all like, it was all like Les Pauls and, uh, um, I can't remember if we had, we used to t- track with this PRS that I got with Paul Reed Smith, which is, they kind of get a bad rap because of certain bands that wound up using them, but mm-hmm. they're really well built. Mm-hmm. It's like a workhorse in the studio. I'm surprised with the riffage. There's not some like BC Riches or some. Uh, <laughs> some no, that sounds like a. Now we we always the thing is we always were like a rock band, you know, and so we never did the leak like um, dual rectifiers or anything like that. It was always Marshall. I think it's it the always, uh, like the, you know classic rock tones. The uh, the are they all double tracked? Is that Gives it the kind of the big meaty yeah, sound. Yeah, they're they're double tracked, and then a lot of the choruses slam in with an extra two, so it's four guitars. And some of the, um, I'd be curious to hear the demos because something like, uh, say, you Vandal, um, I really like. It's interesting how the guitar part is really kind of behind the drums in that, and that would seem to be like something that would take like playing as a band to figure that out. Is, is that how something like that comes together or you does mean the like, demo you mean it's like, like tempo, like to the timing of it is slightly behind the drums. Yeah. Like the drums are like really fast. And I think it would be, it's probably it's that the drums, the drums were played fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian was, that was the, the first time we ever tried to play with a click track on that album. Um, and like, it was pretty, it was tough, you know, and that's just, you know, you're young, musicians that's just like growing pains or whatever sure but you know we just work around that and sort of play with the uh like the tempos as they would rise and fall so you mentioned about when you were talking about blowing your voice out this this is i guess this is the time when you're doing those you're getting in a van and it's 10 hours per between cities and um i would imagine 20 years later that that situation is different now that the, that when you like, you've got <laughs> dates coming up with hot rod circuit. What, what is right. life on the road like now as compared to then? Well, I mean, in a way it's similar. It's just that now we'll get a vehicle and hire a driver and have bunk beds, you know, so we can sleep when we're driving. You know, back then it was just a van and we were all doing the driving ourselves, taking shifts. Right. You know, and not having no money for hotel rooms or if we did, we'd have one hotel room and we'd sneak everybody by the, 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 uh, the lobby, the desk, the concierge or whatever we'd have to, cause you couldn't have like six people pile into a room back then. I don't know if you can nowadays, but if we had, we'd send two people in to ask for a double and then we'd all like find like secret exits to get lit in through the outdoor <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah so these days we don't we just we just get to like i i'm pretty like i just i t- i have to take care of my voice and so you know if i want to go out and hang out with everybody at the bars like afterwards like i wake up the next day and it's like i don't have the same power in my vo- my voice so and plus, I'm a dad. Like at home, I'm on s- such a different. I'm not on like rock and roll hours at home. So like, I'm pretty like early to bed and wake up 
you know, sort of like at a reasonable hour. Yeah. Right. That that stuff all goes out the window once you have to wake a kid up for school and <laughs> get their lunch and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, you gotta do everything. Um, and and also, like, I really like that. I was never much of a dude to like sleep all day, unless I was in like the depths of a dark depression. But um, <laughs> I like getting up and doing stuff. So when you're putting together tour dates now i know so you're you're going to be doing this record in full right and then uh hot rod circuit's doing i think sorry about tomorrow in full um yeah is there you know i'm thinking back to like the late 90s early 2000s it's basically what city do we need to hit next what who do we know there you know you know putting sort of that together if, if you're not working with a booking agency and then once you get a booking agency they're obviously going to handle that for you is does that has that changed in the way that you you figure out what i mean you're only doing a limited number of shows so is figuring out where you're going to play different now are you looking at like well on spotify we've got you know seventeen thousand listeners from this city so maybe we should try to capitalize on that is there any new thought process in terms I mean, of doing that. Somebody might be think, thinking that way, like our booking agent, Andrew Ellis, but I don't, I certainly don't think that way. I mean, I trust his intuition. Um, but like for these shows, we're doing, you know, a show in New Jersey on the day the record came out 20 years ago. That just makes sense. You know, it's our home. Right. That's where we started. And and then the next day we're playing, playing Brooklyn, which also makes sense because, you know, New York, New Jersey is like, that's our original home territory. And then we're taking uh, a week off and heading to Los Angeles and playing Anaheim and L.A. And that makes sense, too. I mean, New York and Los Angeles are probably the two biggest music cities, you know, in terms of live music in the country. So it's sort of like, you know, if you're going to do these only two shows on each coast, or let's say you're only going to do four shows total, it wouldn't make sense, even though we love Columbus, you know, to go <laughs> do it there. Because, you know, people that might want to, like, make sure they're there and go out of their way would have to, you know, make it like a be like a destination concert. Right. Right. I, yeah, I'm curious about. I know I see when bands get together to do these like full album shows. I, I'm I'm always because they tend to like hit New York, hit Chicago, hit LA, you know. And then you you kind of like wonder like, well, why are they playing St. Louis? Like, what did they ha- did they traditionally have a fan base there? Did the, did something happen where they used to have draw a lot of people there, and that's why they're going back? Or is there some sort of statistical analysis being done on the back end by booking agents and, and whatnot. I got to imagine they're, they're crunching oh, some I'm sort sure of data. Somebody's cracked. Yeah. I'm sure, sure somebody's cracked that code. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm really pretty simple, oblivious dude. I'm just like, get up there and do my thing. Were there any cities, uh, you know, around this time that you guys were playing that really stood out as, as where you went over well and, just like back uh, then, Robert. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was like Chicago, Seattle, L.A., San Francisco. Um, these places were like really coming out, going nuts. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started in the tri-state area, you know, like northeast primarily, and then eventually making our way down to Virginia and Florida and stuff, very east coast based. And then when we uh, started to travel more consistently through the entire United States, for sure, Chicago has always been there for us. Minneapolis as well was uh, Milwaukee uh, has always been great. It's I, it's a lot of those places like where you'd expect, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, so sometimes it's like just the amount of people that are in, in an area makes it more likely that more people will want to come. I think about- that's why bands don't go through, you know, smaller populations, just, you know, it's just sort of playing the odds. Right. How about outside of the U.S.? Have you done any touring outside the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, lots. Yeah, yeah lots. We've been all over. Um, and it's wild. My favorite place to play overseas is London. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, shows are just bananas there. How is it different? Like, uh, I've I would say the way that it's different is that in the U.K., there's a very high level of musical intelligence. I don't know if that they're they're teaching that in, in schools and whatnot, uh, or if it's just because you know everybody grew up listening to the Beatles or something. I have no idea how this all happened, but there seems to be an extremely sophisticated sense of of music. And um, I mean, saves the day. You know, it might you might just sound pretty straightforward, but if you go to try to learn it, it's pretty complicated stuff. And you know, and it's it's subtle enough where you know it's not asking to be noticed but that's like if you go to learn a beatles song and you suddenly realize whoa this is kind of this is like more cool than i actually thought just listening to it they do this cool chord change here that you wouldn't expect Mm -hmm. um so that saves the day being um you know i think fairly smart music um we are we've always been appreciated in in England. And also there is a sort of gloomy disposition there, <laughs> the stiff upper lip. Um, I had a friend once who was our tour manager over there. He said, Chris, you're, you're a Brit. You're a Brit. <laughs> <laughs> and mm. just because my, dis- my disposition. Mm. And um, yeah. And so I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's, that's true, but I think there's, there's gotta be some emotional, connection as well it's not just that the music's like cool or whatever did the emo thing matter when you traveled overseas did people care about that as a as a genre description yeah yeah i would say that's true of the entire evolution of says they and all the bands in the world of emo it's sort of it goes hand in hand you know it's like the sex pistols come on the scene and it's about the fact that they're a punk band you know what i mean okay um, you know, like hip hop emerges and it's about the fact that it's hip hop. You wouldn't call it anything else. So, you know, so basically, um, we've been connected to that or even, uh, I guess, um, you know, described like that or whatever. Our identity has been interwoven with emo since the start. And, and emo became this huge wave of music that was incredibly popular and successful and it happened so organically it was like people were psyched back then i don't know if you had that sense because you guys were a couple years older but like our specific generation um 
in that little window, like everybody that's that age was like hell of psyched on, on emo. It was like really fucking cool. You know, it's weird when we look back, you know, doing this podcast, we've done 400 and something episodes. We think of the nineties have always been uh, just been lumped together as like, it's just all one thing, but really there are these like micro movements. Like you're talking about emo when we were just a little bit older than that. And, for Jay and I, it's probably the beginning of the decade is when we graduated high school or we're in high school and then graduating high school and the the, the massive shift happens where it's no longer... So it's like grunge and indie rock. Yeah, it's not Motley Crue and Poison on MTV Haven anymore. And Nirvana. Per, yeah, exactly. And that's where our sort of... Alice in Chains and exa- Soundgarden. That's yep, what we yep. grew up listening to. Like that's what we, our generation, got psyched on that that music. Yeah, and then just a couple years later, um, I don't know how the hell it all turned into what it turned into, but it's <laughs> well. so cool to me. Like, I love studying the uh, the history of like the roots of all this stuff. Like, what led to punk rock? What led yes. to grunge? Um, it's really really cool. And yeah, you're. I think you're totally right. Um, and it's such a fun thought that. There's like these waves, these small, like years long phases of new sort of cultural occurrences. And then in hindsight, you're like, oh, well, that was grunge and this is post grunge. And, you know, this is yeah. emo and then this is pop punk or whatever. Um, it's cool. Yeah. And I remember um, 90, 90s were a great time, man. We lucked out. We did. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the the last uh great decade for for rock and roll in terms of just popular well, attention whew, and feel man, but that's that's like what would the future say about that mm. feel like you don't know what i have in store <laughs> <laughs> i hope at one at one point there was no there was no notion that something like the beatles could happen at yeah. one point there was no notion that something, something like the renaissance could happen or the steam engine, or a wheel. Yeah, this is true. Blasphemous. So, what are your thoughts right now on the music uh, industry? Like, as a business, how do you? I think it's it, all it, about to come, come together in a way that it never has before, in a massive global cohesive um, explosion. Where all like you were saying earlier, you go on Spotify. And it's not necessarily about genres. You kind of listen to everything. Sometimes on shuffle, you know. Like last night, I was listening to my uh, iTunes on shuffle or Apple Music, whatever you call it now. You know, I get Lizzo. You know, and then you know the the next track is uh, Joyce Manor. You know, so and I'm I'm grooving. I'm loving both of them. I think that's what's going to happen, and I think you're hearing it start to happen in hip hop now where you could hear that those melodies sometimes that these guys are singing sound like fallout boy mm. or, you know, or yellow card or my chemical romance. Like there's like, there's even that almost nasally whiny, you know, twinge to the voice. And, and so I think you're going to just have a lot of like, just uh, cross pollination. It's going to be fucking awesome. Uh, I have a nine year old daughter. I have to say that's probably, that's mostly what her experience is. Like, just going on YouTube and finding all kinds of different yeah, music. Yeah, it's all just life now. It's all just culture. Yeah. You know what I mean? So how do you get Everything noticed in that? Just... Or like, uh, 
like how does that part of it work now for well the you? first first things first you just have to be yourself yeah. if you strive to get noticed that's thirsty and everyone can feel it and it's gross you know it's like look at me look at me look at me it's disgusting you have to you have to calmly and casually do your work put your head down do hard work and love what you're doing like say they never tried to get discovered it just happened you know like you can feel it when a band is looking for that hit or you can feel it you can see it in their eyes and their pro their promo photos it's and it's it's a turnoff. Mm. Yeah, we've seen that, Jay. But I would say, like, <laughs> if anybody wants, like, advice, like, um, advice, um, you know, if you really love music, just work your ass off. Study music. Um, write as much as you can. Don't judge what you're writing. You have to, because then the muses you know, won't give their, the ideas over, hand them over as easily. You have to be open and explore and have fun and, and not be afraid. You just have to have fun. And it's not about what people think. It's about how you feel. Do you like it? Are you trying to work through something in your life and understand your experience through your art? That's what it is. That's what writers do. Yeah, otherwise, it's just going to bother people. It's just going to be a, a nuisance. It's going to annoy people. Or like the only other people that will like that are all are also shallow narcissistic people that have they're they're not connected to the the depths of their their true experience as a human. It's just superficial. And it's certainly never been easier to make music in terms of uh, having access to recording yes. equipment and yeah, it's dope. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's the revolution of of hip hop and bands like Depeche Mode were doing that where all of a sudden you didn't have to spend 13 years like learning cello or flute or guitar or whatever. You, if you had an idea in your head, you could make it happen with three fingers. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you can be on... I have a kid in my neighborhood. I shouldn't call him a kid. He's like 20-something. He writes music. He puts it on Spotify. He uses a you know service to get it on Spotify. And like last Friday... He opened for a, he's a hip hop artist. He opened for someone at the Newport Music Hall. And he just based on, he gets, you know, he gets put on Spotify playlists and he goes out and he does shows at clubs and stuff. And then he just opened for somebody who like a thousand people at, at uh, Newport Music Hall. And it's all, and it's all his own work. I mean, just him working and constantly writing and constantly putting stuff up. And it's uh, a totally different world. Like the, uh, there's a bit of like a, the magic of fate and luck and all this stuff that's actually at, at hand and pl- at play here. And I think that's really what it, what it is. You have to be lucky enough to be swept up in the tide of time. You know, but I think, you know, like, uh, I think the, uh, the richer and truer and more sincere the story, the better it is. How uh, how important was it to be a good live band and really focus it was on that? Everything. I grew up I grew up playing cello and orchestra, starting when I was six for seven years, and you had to like really know what you were doing. And so by the time I got the guitar, like my ears had been trained for seven years already as you know as a classical musician, and so I could hear you know fractions of a note that were out of tune or a timing that was off. You know, every time you're in an orchestra and someone speeds up, they 
you know, the conductor taps on the music stand and stops everybody goes start over again. So that's why there's been a thousand people in Save the Day because, you know, I was a bit of, I'm a taskmaster. I know how I want it to sound. And I mean, I don't feel bad. It's awkward for people, you know, to experience that kind of quote unquote authority or whatever. Like I had the final say. Um, but yeah, it was uncomfortable for young musicians to have to deal with that. And I would say I was probably extremely difficult to work with. And still am. It's not fun. <laughs> I can't change, though. You know, I can't change. I, yeah, I'm like almost like, I'm almost like on the spectrum with music because, like, if it doesn't feel right to me, I feel like seasick or something. That's interesting. I've heard that before from people who have very, you know, finite or, or very fine listening skills that if something is off, they actually yeah. like physically feel it, that it's, that it's, yeah, it you hurts feel, them. You feel it physically, you physically feel discomforted, like un, uneasy, like almost queasy. I once read in a science journal on an airplane about a study that was done where they hooked up people to the, all these nodes and whatever, and played music that they liked and music that they hated. And what they noticed was that, when you played the music that they liked, um, the blood vessels would open up and circulation would increase and there was more happiness and comfort in the, the uh, nervous system. But when you played music that people did not like, the blood vessels would literally constrict. So you're literally getting less oxygen from your, your blood. <laughs> so once I read that, I was like, oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Because it's, it's maddening. It's maddening. Like, I can't even be out in the world. With a, I have friends of mine that would be like, you're the nicest guy, but you're such a dick about music. <laughs> <laughs> My wife says the exact same thing about me. Because, like, I'll be listening yeah. to something in the car, and, and I'll, I'll, if I hear something that turns me off immediately, I have to turn the station. And she's like, I like that yeah. song. And I'm, I, well, I, I, I can't. I can't yeah. listen to it. It hurts to, to listen to it. It's vibrational. It's vibrating your molecules. And you ever heard about or read about solfeggio tones? There are these frequencies in music where the subatomic particles that make up the world uh, at certain frequencies snap into a geometric, geometric pattern. If you put grains of sand on a vibrating electric plate and crank up a frequency, just meaning like an electronic frequency, um, all the sand is scattering, scattering, scattering across the board until it gets to a certain frequency where all of a sudden it turns into a snowflake. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And I highly recommend looking up videos of it. Solfeggio tones. It's spelled S-O-L-F-E-G-G-I-O. Solfeggio tones. It's like magic. Crazy. Wow. Do you have perfect pitch? Yes. God, huh. That's probably part of it, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Apparently that nightmare. I've, I've learned that um, <laughs> um, through a YouTube video that you it can actually funny. train people to have, you can train children yeah. on perfect pitch, but not adults. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what happened to me. I got thrown into this Suzuki method uh, at Princeton Day School at six years old and had to, every kid had to pick an instrument for the orchestra through school. And I wound up sticking with that for seven years. So, like, think about 
being six years old, that's pretty darn young. And oh, yeah. they'd send you home with send you home with cassette tapes of Bach and Mozart and you had to sit there and learn it by ear. You know, it's not their like later symphonies. It'll be like, you know, twinkle twinkle or something simple like that. But if you have no idea what you're doing with an instrument and you're just like and they just hand it to you and say, figure this out, um, it definitely it starts honing your ears. It's like being somebody that's trying to spot land or something, you know, you get eagle eyes. Yeah, that's why I can never tune a guitar by ear. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, you would be able to if you listen to the warbling frequencies when you're trying to tune one note to another. If it's there's a wavy feeling, that mm-hmm. means the sine waves are out of out of sync and it's not in tune. So just you could feel it where those waves go. Suddenly they fall into sync, and that's in tune. Interesting. Yeah. This got very scientific, this episode. I, I like it. It's tight, right? It's good. <laughs> we did, I did not prepare this. <laughs> I feel like we should, uh, we should call NPR and get this, uh, get, get, get some. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, it's next level. This is next level. I mean, it's all there in, within, in music itself and math and everything. It's, you know, humans are smart. Yeah, my, I have a seven year old. And she is taking piano, and she already is better than I've ever been in my life at playing piano. So, oh, that's amazing. I can read music, which I never learned to read music, even though I can play like, bass and guitar and stuff like that. And I can play a little bit of piano, but she can read, you know, a music staff. And That's so cool. I think a lot of other countries definitely consciously do that in their curriculum, get people learning math and music at an early age and that's what my school did it was a very nice and sort of exclusive school in princeton that my parents were able to send me to and right away six you know six six years old in first grade you know i didn't know what was what you know and suddenly you're having to learn how to play with an orchestra that's that is that's so cool you're you're lucky your daughter is is in that early it's it's good to have a music teacher wife who suggested we probably oh, want to get awesome. her going now because it'll help cool. with other other disciplines to know how to read I music. Highly, and... I highly recommend uh, picking up if you don't have it already this huge book that's called The Complete Beatles. Okay, maybe it's The Complete Beatles Score or something like that. Um, and it's this massive white book um, that has every single song that the Beatles ever recorded and with the, uh, the music for all the instruments. So if she knows how to read music, you're saying Mm -hmm. she could literally go and learn Martha, you know, Martha, my dear, it's all in this book. Oh, wow. Yeah. The complete, it's, it might be the complete Beatles score scores, something like that. Or it's either the complete Beatles or the complete Beatles scores. I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, that sounds Beatles interesting. is all you need to study. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we are about to hit the hour mark here, so this would be a good spot Word. for us to uh, to wind down. Cool. Um, now we could talk forever, right? Uh, yeah. Basically, <laughs> we could go into well, a whole let's do part two at some point. Uh, definitely, and um, yeah. if we end up, you know, we do. 
not just uh, retrospectives. We do all sorts of episodes. Um, if we end up doing, if we get to Metallica's Black Album, maybe you can come on and talk about that record with us. Or um, what's another yeah, one? Yeah, sure. I got a, I got a couple things to say about it. <laughs> we we like to bring people on not just for the albums that they made, but that they're also fans of, or maybe albums that I you, think that's awesome. You're maybe that you're a fan of that people that yeah, I mean, are like not as well example, known. The, in the wake of the color and the shape, the Foo Fighters record, there was a band in New Jersey that was inspired by it and made it through being cool, which then led to you know this and that, and so yeah, so it's all part of this one this one musical conversation, and uh, it's a gift to get to be part of it. Or maybe you could check out that junkyard record and then come back and we <laughs> I could, gotta check that out. We could do an episode out. on that. That would be interesting. That it's might, a, yeah, that might blow your singer, mind. If the singer's good and the drummer doesn't suck and the lyrics don't make me cringe, I'll be into it. I can't guarantee any of that. I'm sorry. It was <laughs> okay. I don't know about this. <laughs> I'll put my toe in, uh, very, very, uh, carefully because I don't want to, set off my uh my seasick my motion sickness you know <laughs> but i'm, I'm gonna try I'm all gonna right try. so I'm doing it you, junkyard i'm doing it you want to listen to the 1989 debut album that's the classic the cl- okay. classic in quotation marks um <laughs> as far as uh the band people should go to facebook that's uh that's where they can get updates and stuff like that and then there's also i believe on there there's a link to where people can pick up the 20th anniversary re-release, which has the bonus tracks you were talking about um, earlier. When does that, is that on sale now or is that a pre-order now? I think it's pre-order now. I'm the worst at knowing like anything about all this stuff. (laughs) That's okay. I'm like not a good sales salesman, Uh, but uh, yeah, check it out. You just, yeah. Type saves the day into the computer and something will happen. Let's see what happens when I, it's yeah, merch, st- merch store is the top result so yeah I think you're, you're good saves the day dot com somebody is doing your SEO well yes there we go yeah it's real the merch line for the through being cool shows in the uh re-release is amazing so check that out go get some through being cool merch yep i've got it up here now i will link to that in the show notes for uh, Thanks, this man. particular episode. Thank so, you guys. This was a, this was fun chatting. Thank you. Thanks thank for, you for taking some of on. your uh, Sunday night out and, and chatting with us. We greatly appreciate it. Definitely. Absolutely. Thanks, I really appreciate it. All right. Have a good evening, Chris. Okay. You as well, y'all. Bye, sure. guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our facebook twitter and instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com Dig me out.